Well, I'm so glad that you are here today for our final installment in the series called Uncensored, what we've been talking about through the length of this series. And this is just a bonus message into the series, actually. Just felt like this was a great time and place to talk about this sensitive topic because we've talked about marriage and what we've just really been trying to do is uncensor what it means to to be a man and woman, what it means to have masculinity and femininity and when they come together in marriage and how they complement one another. And so one of the ways that we began this series is just to unpack this is just using this very simple analogy and the Hebrew word that we've been talking about is the is the word zakar, and it means it means man or male or masculinity. So in that, it's part of being zakar is being the one who takes initiative, and that also that word it means the one who has a tip. And that also, that's talking about the sexual organ, but also it's talking about the, just the connection between gender and also roles that men play particularly. And also, I introduced this, this word that none of us had probably ever heard until this series, nebuchadnezzar. Say that with me. It's a fun word. Say, say it with me. Come on. No, everybody with some courage. Come on. Ready? Nebuchadnezzar. All right. Not, not bad. Not good, but not bad. It was somewhere in between. But that is the word for female or being feminine. What does it mean to be feminine? And what was God's ideal for being masculine and feminine? And the, the feminine word, that word, nebuchadnezzar, it means the one who was perforated or the one who was punctured. And also it, it draws into the idea of receiving. So a very simple analogy of those two things, male and female coming together, masculinity and femininity. What I've said is when the two come together, not just in marriage, but just in life and being who it is that God wants us to be, it unlocks something very special about the human experience. Again, not just sexually, just as being people, as we display God's brilliance as men and women in the world, that we, we do this for one another. So it's unlocking something that is uh, something that God has put in each and every one of us, and we're to express our, our masculinity and our femininity in the way that God detailed. Now, last week, I gave a preface to this week, and if you were here last week, you know about this. And I preface uh, this week by saying that we're going to talk about the, the topic of sex, and there's going to be nothing crude or anything like that, but we are going to talk about that because the Bible does talk about these things. And what we believe is that we're not to be provocateurs uh, in the church, but yet if the Bible talks about something, we need to talk about it. And because there's so much going on in the world today that they're in just... Culturally, they're claiming all sorts of things on this topic. We want to see what the Bible has. And ultimately, what I'm going to give you today is five different principles. I'm just going to create a foundation. Really, I'm just going to create an opportunity for you to have conversations if you need to have conversations on this topic. But in this, you're going to hear five different things that will help you in this area. And then also, five different these five truths counteract five different lies that we ultimately will see that shame has brought in because I think that shame is the big enemy. Uh, it's the big thing that the enemy uses as far as uh, when we start talking about how we express ourselves in this way. It's difficult to talk about because all of the exposure that's happened in the culture with the Me Too movement 
And I would say that most of that needed to be talked about. It needed to be brought to the surface because there's a lot of bad things that have happened. And those things need to be brought to the surface if we're going to, to redeem these areas. And there's been some abuse that's happened in the past. I think that we need to elevate that. There needs to be justice served in whatever way it needs to be done, again, by the lens of God's justice, not the worldly justice. But I think that those things need to happen, but it makes it hard to talk about it in church. And if I were to pull you right now, I think another reason why it's hard to talk about is this, because it was never talked about in your home. Most of you never have this, had, never had the talk with your parents. And if I were to poll you and I would say, hey, how many people are still waiting to have the talk from their parents? Most of you would be like, still waiting. Like you just haven't had it. And, then, you know, and yet there's always like I get the, the parental side of it. If parents aren't proactive, and I'm not just totally knocking you parents, although I do think you need to have these conversations. I'm giving you a foundation for these conversations today. But I, I think what happens is parents, they're afraid to talk about it. So the world just goes in and defines it in a worldly sense instead of us as parents defining in a biblical sense. So if the world defines it in, in that type of sense, the parents, if they don't have that conversation, they just say, well, I just hope something, I hope nothing bad happens. Well, I hope they do this, but hope is never a strategy. So I want to create for you a strategy, a way to go forward that, that you can maybe have those awkward conversations, although you have maybe not had that, that conversation with your parents, and yet maybe you don't know how to, so I'm... Uh, we're all in this together, whether we're in the room or you're connecting online, we're in this together so we can have those conversations so we can have an actual strategy. And also, I think because of the, the church's silence for years, it's also added into a lot of issues. The church has been so silent, so you've probably never been in a church service where this was actually talked about. So then in those kinds of, of areas, it just becomes some sort of taboo, something we just don't talk about. That we do, but we just don't talk about. And then if it's not talked about in the church, and again, the culture defines it, what are we left to do? What are we left to believe? Who is it that we are going to become um, if we don't talk about it? I want to begin with two different things, uh, two different ideas as we move forward into these. The first one is this. We are more than sexual beings, but we are still sexual beings. We are not just sexual beings, but we're still sexual beings. So there is something we need to talk about. There is an expression of, of masculinity and femininity. There is an expression of a husband and wife, them coming together under the covenant of marriage, what we talked about last week, and talked about the difference that Jesus makes when he brings those two people together. There's... There's an expression of that sexually that is good and that's wholesome. Sadly, here's the other phrase that, it, again, this will bring some tension, and I'm not trying to be provocative, but I just think it's true. In Christian circles, sex has been viewed as robotic than, more so than erotic. It's, just, it's something that we, we do but we don't talk about. Or it's something that we have to do instead of something that is gifted to us by God that we get to do. So if it's just something that, well, we just have to because this is just the way that we have babies, then all of a sudden you're missing the whole side of, I think, that part of God's grace and just, just the expression sexually that you're supposed to be able to enjoy under the covenant of marriage. So then it becomes more robotic than erotic. And I realize that word erotic is, it is 
uh, it's a word not used very often. I, in all honesty, that word is not used in the Bible. That, that word itself is not used in the Bible. Culturally, there's been a redefinition of this word, and that's the reason why we're afraid to use it. It comes from the Greek word eros, and that's the, that's the type of lovemaking that's just fire. It's just instant. And although that word is not used in the Older New Testament, we have a whole book of the Bible called Song of Solomon that talks about this in real life with a married couple. So I just want to give you a short passage and give you an example of this, this eros, this kind of fire, this passion, deep passion. So Song of Solomon is this. This is not the main passage, by the way, but this is just something to, uh, to, to lead us into where we're going to go. Song of Solomon 1, 2, and 4 says this, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. What do you think is going to happen when the king brings his wife into the chambers, right? Like there's something that is passionate that's going to be happening within this. So we see this in the Song of Solomon. We see this idea of eros, this type of passion for one another that's played out. Now, one of the things I've talked about, again, I just want you to know that all of these things are connected. So everything that we've talked about so far in the series, and this is a longer series than normal, but everything we've talked about in this series is connected. So I want to reintroduce a passage that I've already talked about, connecting some dots. In Genesis 2, 24 and 25, it says this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. This idea of being one flesh is, is the, a connection of emotion. It's, a, it's just a connection of, of just uh, social connection. It's a spiritual connection, and it's also a sexual connection. Again, under the, the banner of the covenant of marriage. This word leave, it means that the dependence is transferred from parents to one another within the context of marriage. So the leaving, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. In other words, a man will leave the support system of his parents, that he will be his own man, that he will work, he will provide for himself, and through that, provide an opportunity for him to be married so that his wife can share this connection as he's left his parents. The second is the, the cleave, and this is the idea of total commitment to one another. Total commitment to one another. And again, the one flesh is being joined together spiritually, relationally, and sexually. And notice that Adam and Eve, in this, in this very simple passage, look at the last verse in verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Adam and Eve could see each other and they could see themselves without shame, without disappointment, and without frustration. So before sin was introduced, they could see one another, not as sexual objects, but they could see one another and that they could see one another's beauty because they were naked and had no shame. There was nothing covering themselves up. So they could see each other and they could also see themselves without shame, without disappointment, 
and without frustration. We're going to see the, the main passage that introduces this in the Word of God in Genesis 3. I invite you to open your Bible into Genesis 3, starting in verse 7 through 11. This chapter, many of you already know, some of you may not, is known as the, the chapter is the fall of man. So this is when sin was introduced. So now there's a lot of consequences to the sin that was introduced. But we're just going to kind of jump into this story in verse 7 to see how things have changed for them in their relationship. Verse 7, Genesis 3 says this, Then the eyes of both of them, that's Adam and Eve, were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was in the garden of the cool of the day, they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And of course they had. But you see, the very first thing that they sense after the, the committal of this sin, that both of them are now impacted. And what is the very first thing that they felt against one another and against God? Shame. It was shame. Notice, again, back to the passage. Notice how they're hiding, and that's what shame does. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What are they doing? They're hiding themselves. They're now, now no longer can they see each other in just the, the brilliance of God's beautiful design with masculine and feminine, male and female. Instead, now things begin to be twisted, and now they're covering themselves with fig leaves. Now they're embarrassed to be seen even with one another, and everything was fine before this. Notice that there's more of this that happens. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? Adam says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? And he says, have you eaten from the tree or eaten some fruit from the tree that he should not have eaten from? You see, this, this type of thing happens all the time. No longer are we sewing fig leaves together. Now we use clothes. And I'm an advocate for clothes. Clothes are good. Um, but, but so that isn't the point. But the point in that is, Shame causes us to hide. And pastorally, I can tell you that, that people have gone to be really crafty in hiding. Some people hide at work. Some people hide in the kitchen. Some people hide by saying that I'm an extrovert. Some people hide and saying that I'm an introvert. Some people hide in a deer stand. Some people hide at the mall. 
Uh, some people hide with their friends. Sometimes people just hide by being lazy. Sometimes people hide by being overly busy. Sometimes hide when they don't have kids, and sometimes they hide and say that they're so busy because they have kids. We have gotten to be so good at hiding. And the cause of this hiding from the reality of our own selves, the root cause of that is shame. We're in the same boat as Adam and Eve. They sewed fig leaves together. And they hid from the Lord thinking that they could actually hide from the Lord. And we ourselves are in a perpetual cycle of hiding from ourselves, the reality of who we really are, and also hiding from the Lord. And we've gotten to be so crafty in doing it. But there's good news. There is good news that it's forthcoming. Bad news is this. Without God's help, we hide who we are. Without God's help, we hide who we are. We hide who we are as, as the way that we interact with one another. We hide who we are even in spaces like this when there's a truth that you're confronted with and you wrestle with and your mind automatically goes to thinking about that shopping list that's not important, by the way, not in this setting, but your mind starts swirling into that shopping list or you're starting to think about what you're going to have for lunch. What is that? That is a ploy from Satan causing you to hide from what God is telling you. That's what that is. Make no mistake. So the, the very, the, in this, this very sacred space that we sit in, when the truth is confronted, when you're confronted with the truth and your mind spirals and you start thinking about someone else, maybe the reason why you're thinking about someone else is because Satan has is, is just woven a story in your life that, is, that you can actually hide and maybe that you think you can hide and get away with it. But you're actually hiding from the Lord and you're hiding from what the Lord would have for you. So without God's help, we hide who we are. This is just human nature, sadly. But the root cause of this is shame. Shame has also twisted sex into taboo instead of a topic to discuss. Shame has distorted sex until now it's become this personal fulfillment instead of a mutual fulfillment. Sex is, uh, excuse me, shame has skewed sex into, into an object of worship instead of a gift from the one who is the only one worthy of our worship. You've never heard this before. I believe it to be true. I couldn't be convinced otherwise. If you want a fulfilling sex life, begin by broadening your spiritual life. If you want a fulfilling sex life, married couples. If you, if you want that, Begin by broadening your spiritual life. Because it is only your spiritual life and only a life connected to Christ that is going to allow you to see the areas that you're hiding. Hiding who you really are from God, from yourself. And that's the only way that you cannot feel shame about who you are. Jesus' death and resurrection is the only remedy for the shame that we feel over our sin failures. This, this is the only remedy. The gospel message is the only remedy. There is no other remedy. Three different passages. These will not be on the screen. Just to kind of help us to understand this. 
Romans 9.26, excuse me, Hebrews 9.26 says this. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is talking about Jesus. That he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. What is this passage saying? It's saying that there's, there's no other way of which to have your sins cleansed by what Jesus, other than what Jesus did on the cross. There's no other way. There's no way to, to lower, uh, metaphorically, to lower those fig leaves for us to stop hiding from who we are, to stop hiding from, from God. There's no other way other than the sacrifice of himself. And aren't you so willing, or aren't you so, so happy to know that Jesus was willing to do this for us? That this wasn't God's plan B. This wasn't like, how am I going to fix this sin problem? God wasn't caught off guard with Adam and Eve. God had a plan the whole time. He has a plan for your life, every aspect of your life, in your singleness and in your marriage, everything. He has a plan for you. He's not caught off guard by, by what you've done. We know this spiritually speaking because Jesus sacrificed himself to have your heart set free from the guilt, shame, and consequence of your sin and the damnation that was due you because of your sin and your fallen sin nature. Acts 4.12 says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved. In other words, there's no other way for you to be right with God. There's no other way for you to be saved from your sins. There's no other way. There's no other, there's no other method of cleansing of your shame. Because salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name other than the name of Jesus by which you can be saved. And those of us who are saved... 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. And what will He do? And He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us and purify us of all unrighteousness. Again, I'm just trying to help you to understand that this is what God longs for you to stop hiding. To think that if you just play this massive game and of hide-and-seek long enough that you're going to outlast God and that if you get to the end of your days, you can hide long enough. Foolishly, this is what Satan wants us to believe, but consequently what happens is we're actually hiding from God's best for us. So how does this, how, how is this lived out spiritually and sexually in the context of marriage? You reverse the curse by immersing your marriage in Jesus. You reverse the curse by immersing your marriage in Jesus. The curse that we see that was set forth in Genesis 3, the way that that is reversed, to no longer live in this shame, living with a, a sense of condemnation and fear, we reverse the curse by immersing your marriage in Jesus. And if you're single, just immerse your life in Jesus. And whether or not you're ever married, if you immerse your life in Jesus, your life will be fulfilling whether or not you get married. 
Spiritual maturity stokes the fire of sexual intimacy. I know it seems so weird for me to say this. It seems so weird for you to hear this because you've probably never heard this. You've you've thought in your mind because you've been conditioned to think that that happens in the bedroom and this is the church house. So how in the world are those two things connected? Because I have a spiritual life and I also have this this other part of of my my sexual life in, in my marriage. Like I have that. But yet under the banner of the Lordship of Jesus, it's all connected. It's all connected. So spiritual maturity stokes the fire of sexual intimacy. I want to give you five things just to give you a foundation. I believe for God's plan, uh, part of God's plan for marriage, the the first one is is sex is part of God's plan. The, The lie that's assumed and lived out, although you probably never heard it, but it's been assumed, is this. The lie is that sex is the result of the fall, so it's, it's like a necessary evil. By the way, there's no such thing as a necessary evil. There's no such thing as a necessary evil. If it is evil, there's another way out, or we've just wrongly believed something. So sex isn't a result of, of, a, of, just a, of the fall, and it is never a, a necessary evil. Because again, I'll reintroduce Genesis 2, 24 through 25 said this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They felt no shame before the sin was introduced in Genesis 3. So human sexuality has been wounded by the fall. The fall is the reason why there's such a movement in our day for the for homosexuality or polygamy or the other deviant ways that sexual expression has lived out. It's because of the fall. And there's there's a counter lie now of saying that now you can just have it however you want to have it, because it's up to you. It's about your happiness. That too's a lie. You see, at the fall, nudity became a matter of embarrassment and fear as men and women eyed each other as sexual objects instead of people just with physical differences. It was in that moment where they realized that they were naked and they felt that shame. They felt exposed, if you will. That their eyes, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Again, you see this this theme. They were hiding, hiding, hiding. And this is what shame does. But being naked and unafraid is a spirit of sexuality, intimacy, and security that all married people should work towards with husbands taking spiritual responsibility. Meaning that it is a matter of spiritual responsibility. That as a man, and we've talked about this in this series, as a man leads spiritually, he, it's not a matter of, well, if I lead spiritually, then I'm going to get something physically in return. That's not the point. If you're hearing that, you're hearing it incorrectly. What I'm saying is when a, a man leads spiritually, the consequence of that is less shame. More openness to God, more openness to one another, sexually and otherwise. 1 John 2.28 says this, And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, that we may be confident and unashamed before Him 
at his coming. This is God's longing that we would not live in shame, that we would be unashamed for the life we live. But the power that we have as sexual beings is without a doubt the reason why Satan has twisted its meaning. Because there's so much power, which is the second thing for our foundation. Is not only is it part of God's plan, but also sex is powerful. And Satan knows this. The lie assumed in this is that I can define my sexual preference and, and my sexual practices are no one's business. Again, these are lies. That I can do what I want because it's about me. It's about my What's the next word we hear culturally? Body. It's not. It's not. We are simply stewards of what God has for us. So not only is sex part of God's plan, but also we have to understand that sex is powerful. A way that I I visualize this is if you go up north in North Georgia, if you've ever been to Tallulah Gorge, one of the prettiest places in Georgia that I've ever gone to. But if you've never gone there, uh, I do recommend you do, but if you have gone there, you're going to know this, and you're, it's going to create a mental picture. At the top of, of uh, Tallulah Gorge, there's a, a, a lake, and then they release a certain amount of water that actually goes in. It's kind of created the gorge, and then once the gorge drops, I don't even know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of feet, from the one body of water down to the other, it is over time and pressure, the water is just carved, uh, just carved out. Just this beautiful, just, just beautiful channel through this rock down to the other pool of water. And I think to myself, when I think about uh, that sex is powerful, that I think of it like this. And this is, a, again, the mental image I think of, of just what that, you see that water as it's going down. It has so much power behind it. And it needs that rock to help hold it in place. It needs that the firmness and it needs the, the rigidity of the sides for it to flow from one body of water to the other, and it needs that. Sex is like, is like a river that needs the strong banks of marital commitment and covenant to make it what God intended. It's so powerful that it needs to be under the boundary of the marriage covenant that God has for us. And what is so amazing to me is the gospel washes away sin and the shame that's associated with sex. So the marriage covenant is the safest place for sexual expression. Again, the analogy of the river, of when it's going through, we need the strong banks of marital covenant to to hold it together, to hold us together because it has so much power. We just know that powerful things need boundaries and barriers. Powerful things need, they need boundaries and barriers. Jesus himself in Matthew 19 verses 9 through 6 said this. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That should sound very familiar. So they, but here's the addition. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why would Jesus say that? But one of the reasons why he's saying that is when we express ourselves sexually, it is so powerful that Jesus says we need something more powerful than our own longings to hold it, to bank it in, because it's so powerful and so strong. So, so we need the covenant of marriage of which God holds 
together. And notice what Jesus said, so, the, so that they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So, so what does this also mean? This means that sex is not an audition for marriage. That's what this also means. It, it means that it's not just an audition for marriage. Instead, sex is a gift set only for marriage. That means it isn't just some audition to say, well, I don't know if I want to be married to them. We need to do this first to see if, it's, you know, if, if they're worthy of me marrying them. Sex is not an audition for marriage. It's, it's a gift set only for those who are married. There's a lot of ways that, that sexual immorality has, has taken place, or is taking place in our world today. And I just want to speak very briefly. Maybe you want to write down some of these sources again so you can have conversations later. These sexual practices are considered immoral, meaning against God's best. They would be called sinful. They would also be, they would also be part of the consequence of the fall. So one of, this, one of those would be pornography. The second would be any sort of homosexual practice. You could look uh, this up in Leviticus 18.22, Romans 1.26 and 27. That's very clear teaching on that, by the way. 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 10, and also 1 Timothy 1.9 and 10. Also, adultery. There's several passages on this. One of those you could look at is Exodus 20, verse 14. And premarital sex in 1 Corinthians 6.18 and 1 Thessalonians 4.3. I realize I'm giving you a lot, but I feel like I have to because we're creating a foundation today. Another very clear teaching on all of this comes from 1 Corinthians 6.18-20. through 20. This will be on the screen. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It's a catch-all that has to do with all sexual practice. The third thing is we're trying to, again, create this foundation is understand that Sex is a partnership between husband and wife. The lie that's been perpetuated is this, that it's about my needs. And it's your job to make me happy. This is a lie. I'm going to widely apply a passage of Scripture and because I think it, it has a wide application. From Ephesians 5.21, it says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's this idea of mutual submission that we're to have. And if you are a Christian man and a Christian woman who are bonded by the marriage covenant, you're submitting to one another. So it's not a matter of you having your needs met only. Instead, it's a matter of having mutual needs met. So what is this also saying? This is saying that sex is not supposed to be a weapon of, of manipulation. Nor is it to be demanded. 
If you're submitting to one another, it's not a matter of, of you manipulating one, one or the other, manipulating to get what they want, making somebody feel bad to wear them down so that they get what they want. Also, it's not a matter of something that you can just demand. And if I'm honest, this is the very violation that I've seen in the church more than anything, I've heard over time more than anything, that the man who arrogantly and pridefully says, I'm the man, I deserve this. And that is a completely wrong way of looking at any sort of, sex, of sexual expression to think that you can demand anything of another human being, whether you're married or not. So married people, they submit to one another when initiating and receiving sexual prompts, which is why I sought application from Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So you're submitting to one another even when it comes to initiating and receiving sexual prompts. Because sexual fulfillment is built upon trust and tenderness. It's built upon trust and tenderness. The fourth principle, and they, they get shorter along just so we know, but the fourth one is this. Sex is pleasurable. It is pleasurable. The lie, because of shame that's been perpetuated, is this, that sex must be endured, not enjoyed. This is a lie. Sex is also not about performance. It's to be pleasurable for both husband and wife. Two passages, one of these will be on the screen, one of these will not. Or two verses, same passage. Proverbs 5.18 says this, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. So may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. And that becomes really important as we look at the very next verse in the direct context. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always, May you ever be captivated by her love. This speaks of sex being a matter of pleasure. So it's part of God's plan. It's powerful. It's pleasurable. It's, it's a partnership. And lastly, sex is for procreation. But the lie here is that sex is just about having babies. And again, because it's also pleasurable... We know that that is not true. But it is also for procreation, for having babies. Genesis 1.28 says this, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is about procreation. I'm of the belief that, that Christian couples should have babies, as many as God allows and as many as they can wisely discern to have. I think that they should. Why? Because this is what the Word of God says. That God blessed them, and He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. I would take it a step further and say, fill the earth with other, with other like-minded believers. Whether we do that through evangelism or the kids we raise in our home, fill the earth. Reverse the curse. Redeem the broken. Bring good news into Encounter the bad news. Recover what was lost. 
Bind the brokenhearted. Heal the sick. Pray for the broken. Yeah, I'm talking about Christians, but I'm also talking about what Jesus did and what Jesus is still doing. You see, the closer that you grow to Jesus, the more vibrant your sex life will be. Because in Genesis 2.25, it talked about them being naked and not ashamed. Hebrews 9.26, it says, But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with the sin by the sacrifice of himself. I've explained this. Acts 4.12 said salvation comes by no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which to be saved. That Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to know the Father but by Jesus. Salvation doesn't come. There's no alternate way to be saved. And there's no, no way for you to live in such a way that you're not overwhelmed by shame if we don't lean heavily into 1 John 1, 9, confessing our sins, knowing that God is faithful and just, and He will forgive us our sins, and He will, he will purify us, He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the way this works in marriage is we reverse the curse by immersing our marriage in Jesus. This is the way. This is the way to a fulfilling marriage. This is the way to have a fulfilling sex life. This is the way of living in such a way where you don't have to fear who you are. You don't have to have shame with who you are. You can look at it, it, your life and see yourself through the lens of what Jesus has already done for you. And if you're a Christian, what you've already accepted from him. I invite you to pray with me now. Father, we thank you. We love you. And Lord, moments like these are, are difficult for us because we're trying to take in a lot of information that we've never heard in a short span of time. And Lord, for everyone who has, has listened to this teaching and they, we've gleaned as much as we can, Lord, humanly, there's only a certain amount that we can actually take in and even seek to understand. So Lord, what we pray for is a spiritual discernment, a discerning spirit now of of hearing the word and letting that word bear fruit in our lives, in our marriages, our spiritual life, our sexual life, and in every relationship that we have. I praise you, Jesus. I praise you of your willingness to go to the cross to reverse the curse the curse that we were all bound into, lies that we were all tempted to believe. But because of this truth and truths like it, that we can truly be free. Free from overwhelming guilt, being consumed in our shame, and feeling condemned by our sin. We thank you, Jesus, and we praise you. Amen.